What's up, everybody? This is your main man, Tyler, back again for Season 4 of the Around the Bases podcast. Your home for college softball coverage, professional softball, Team USA softball, and pretty much anything else that falls under the softball world. Um, Like I mentioned, I'm your host, Tyler. Uh, Graduated from... James Madison University was a softball uh, student manager there for three years from 2017 to 2019. Uh, Best times of my life, to be honest with you. If this is your first time listening, welcome. Um, This is our, like I said, this is the fourth year that I've been doing this. So I've been very blessed to be able to follow the softball game and be able to get my thoughts down on recording Um, So that, you know, everyone that is a fan of softball, whether it be college or professional, can have a little, uh, a bit of insight and basically have what I'm thinking about what's going on. Um, That having been said, uh, the opening day of college softball is right upon us here as I'm about to stroke uh, the hour of midnight on February 9th, Thursday opening day. Um, So let's dive right into everything. We'll start with aux softball, which is the shorter, more condensed athletes unlimited uh, softball season. Um, What they call their their longer season is uh, their championship season, which was played later in the summer last year. Ox softball was 42 athletes playing 18 games or three series uh, at San Diego State's softball complex. And those games were played over two weeks, so it's a much faster pace, much quicker. Um, Champion is determined a lot faster. Only three teams playing four games in each series or each week or each sub-series because they didn't take up the whole week. Every game was televised by the ESPN family of networks, which I think is huge, and it will be again this year, although it'll be held at Rosemont, Illinois, which is basically a fundamental home of professional softball um, throughout history. Uh, But let's look at the recap for Aux softball in their first season, the shorter condensed version of the championship season. Starting with Deja Mulipola running away on the leaderboard after the first series with 650 points, which was 174 ahead of second place. Danielle Gibson, who had 476. Sam Fisher came in in third with 466. Andrea Filler was fourth with 458. And then Haley McClenney rounded out the top five with 440 points. Week two, or excuse me, series two. Sam Fisher took over the top spot on the leaderboard, moving up from third at with 988 points. Danielle O'Toole moved into second with 978. Morgan Circle moved into the top five, into third with 950. Deja Mulipola fell to fourth with 948 points, and Andrea Filler rounded out the top five, falling one spot to fifth with 924 points. So lastly, the last series, Danielle O'Toole became the first champion of Aux softball as she finished their shorter condensed season with 1,436 points. Rachel Garcia, former UCLA great, finished second with 1,422 points. Deja Mulipola rounded out uh, with third uh, with uh, 1,368 points. Morgan Circle finished fourth with 1,338 points. Rounding out the top five was the former South Florida standout, Georgina Cork, with 1,308 points. The last note for them was Sis Bates won the defensive MVP of the league, which should come to no surprise to anyone who has ever watched Sis Bates in college softball at the University of Washington. Um... So she won defensive MVP. Danielle O'Toole became the first champion. And it was was quite fun to watch having, you know, less 
time, so you know you needed to make more of an impact earlier, because points are cumulative throughout the season. Um, but it was very entertaining to watch, and I'm ki I very much enjoyed it, so I'm looking forward to the second season of Auk Softball from Rosemont, Illinois, later this year in the summer. That having been said, let's move on to Athletes Unlimited Season 3's recap. Through the first week of Championship Season 3, the leaderboard started with Kerry Eberly in first with 452 points. Savannah Jaquish was second with 438 points. Once again, Deja Mulipola in the top five in third with 432 points. Kelsey Harshman was fourth with 366 points. And rounding out the top five, Rachel Garcia with 362 points. After the second week, Deja Mulipola grabbed the lead with 826 points. Haley McClenney moved into the top five into second with 748 points. Savannah Jaquish and Amanda Chittister were tied for third with 728 points, and rounding out the top five was Bubba Nichols with 708 points. Rounding out, um, excuse me, moving on to week three. After week three, Deja Mulipola remained in the lead with 1,094 points. Haley McClenney stayed second with 1,076 Savannah Jaquish maintained third with 1,072 points. Amanda Chittister fell out of the tie for third into fourth with 1,042 points. Hannah Flippin rounds out the top five with 970 points. So after week four, Deja Mulipola still had the lead with 1,462 points. Amanda Chittister moved from fourth to second with 1,364 points. Alyssa Denham made her first jump into the top five at third with 1,316 points. Haley McClenney fell from second to fourth with 1,316 points. And then rounding out the top five was your AUX softball champion, Danielle O'Toole, with 1,226 points. So wrapping up Season 3 of Athletes Unlimited, Deja Mulipola, the standout from Arizona, became the first non-pitching champion in Athletes Unlimited history in their third year as she took the crown with an epic performance on the final day as she finished with 1,782 points. Another former Arizona standout, uh, Alyssa Denham, finished second with 1,720 points. Haley McClenney, former Alabama great, finished third with 1,650 points. Former LSU player Savannah Jaquish finished fourth with exactly 1,600 points. And then former Michigan standout Amanda Chittister, in her final game as a professional, mind you, rounded out the top five with 1,592 points. Again, Athletes Unlimited. Championship Season 4 will come later this summer after AUK Softball, also be in Rosemont, Illinois this year. So very much looking forward to seeing Athletes Unlimited in their fourth year with softball. And it's a good time. It'll They just renewed their uh, contract, so it will be all over the ESPN family of networks again this year. So I'm very much looking forward to seeing how that plays out moving forward and seeing who can etch their name into the history books of this very unique professional league. Now, from one professional league on to the other, hoping to make a little bit more of a splash this year, uh, but the Women's Professional Fast Pitch League was in their first year last summer, and it contained the USSA Pride and the Smash It Vipers. Smash It Vipers took the opening game of the WPF's inaugural season with a 9-5 win over the USSA Pride. <clears throat> now, the Smash It, they didn't just play each other, um, but the Smash It Vipers went 17-13 overall and 7-12 and against the USSA Pride, while the USSA Pride went 19-10 with a 12-7 record against the Smash It Vipers team. Now, some of the teams that they played against were made up of collegiate talent 
Uh, you had Team Alliance, Heart of America, Fast Pitch League, Florida Vibe, Team Mexico as they were preparing for the World Games last year, Team Australia, Team Japan, Team USA, Carolina Collegiate Softball League, and Stars and Stripes Sports. So a ton of collegiate players, a ton of professional players. Um, as teams were getting ready for the World Games, they played some international teams so that, you know, both could get in meaningful games as they're looking to branch out and expand, which I'm about to uh, talk further about here. Uh, but the WPF announced that Oklahoma City would be getting their own professional softball team, which just makes a ton of sense, as the Oklahoma City Spark will begin play this summer. Uh, the schedules were just released not too long ago. Uh, for each of the now four teams that will be in the WPF, <gasps> excuse me, this summer. Um, so, and it's great to see professional softball is coming to one of the the cathedral of softball in really the world. To be honest with you, Hall of Fame Stadium um, there in Oklahoma City is an absolute icon when it comes to softball in the United States and when it comes to international softball, there's been a ton of games played between international teams there as well. So it's very exciting to see professional softball is expanding to play in that stadium in Oklahoma city. Now they also added a fourth team down in Texas that I don't know if they're going to change the name of it, but it's called Texas WPF that will also begin play this summer as well. This team is, I believe, co-owned by former Reds player Brandon Phillips. So it's going to be exciting to see four teams now in this newly expanded professional league. Uh, this summer, we'll see the league play in Florida, down in Vieira, where U-Triple-S-A Pride call home, Oklahoma, obviously. Uh, there will be some games in Alabama. Uh, some games in Illinois and Peoria, Texas, obviously. Kansas, there's going to be some games in Shawnee, Kansas, and some games in Indiana. Um, it's great to see this league expanding and taking the professional game to new places around the country. Typically, we haven't seen that a whole lot with professional softball, so I'm glad to see that. Commissioner Lauren Chamberlain is making expansion and taking the game around the country, not necessarily keeping them located in one specific home spot, although they do have their designated home stadiums and home places. But I'm excited to see some of the quote-unquote neutral games um, in places that aren't home venues for the four teams. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that looks this summer. Um, obviously, I'll have the recap for that for you for next year uh, as we get ready for the 2024 college softball season. But we won't get too far ahead of ourselves. We'll just put that into, tuck it into next season's start. Uh, but while we're taught, while I mentioned the World Games, let's recap Team USA's journey there. Team USA rolled through the group stage at the World Games in Birmingham, Alabama, as they outscored their group, which consisted of Chinese Taipei, Canada, and Italy, 23-2 to to advance to the semifinals as the top team in their group. Now, in the semifinal, Team USA's pitching obviously, lights out as they only allowed one hit in their 5-0 win over Australia to advance to the championship game for the gold medal against, who else would you expect? Japan. Top two teams in the world in softball. And every time these two get together, it's must-watch television, must-watch softball. Um, and Team USA scored three runs in the second and held on to claim the gold medal, thus reclaiming their status as the top dog in the world of softball as they took the game 3-2 over their fierce rivals from Japan. Glad to see Team USA got uh, was able to get that win after losing to Japan in the gold medal games at the Olympics in Tokyo. 
So I was glad to see Team USA was able to rebound and be able to get a win over Japan. Because I know the Team USA is in kind of a transitional phase from a pitching standpoint. Because we used to have two guns in the circle, Monica Abbott and... Um, oh, jeez. And Kat Osterman. But Kat Osterman retired now. And Monica Abbott's probably not going to see much more action at on the international stage at this point in her career as new up-and-comers come into the team and start transitioning to a younger team, per se. Um, we'll have to see how Team USA looks moving forward, but we can adjust that. I can roll with that as we move forward. Um, I'll be interested to see how they do, how Team USA does at the, um, um, when they're qualifying for the finals of the World Softball, the Softball World Cup. That will take place this summer as well. They will be in a group playing over in Ireland, if I remember correctly. Um, so they'll be playing they'll be in a group of six playing for a spot in the finals in which will be hosted by Italy in 2024. So we'll have that also for you for next year, but that we will, we won't have to go into depth to that now. That's something that'll be for another day. All right. So getting the professional and the international side out of the way, let's talk about the double base being approved on an experimental basis for this academic year. Both teams would have to agree to use them in f prior fall and spring competitions. I think this is absolutely huge for the safety of players. Anytime you're watching a softball, or even a baseball game for that matter, you see pr problems where the runner is running down the line and they'll, because of either the throw or just where their foot, the first baseman's foot is placed, you'll see collisions, you'll see twisted ankles. So that way with this double base on the, a second base, the runner can go to that base instead of having to step on the same base that the, um, first baseman is catching the ball and having their foot on. Um, I, again, that's huge for the safety. It's going to make collisions. It should take down the number of collisions that we have in the sport, hopefully less turned ankles. So they won't have to worry about stepping on the first baseman's ankles and international softball always uses a double bag to cut down on injuries Again, I absolutely love this move, and I think it should be used by as many teams as possible because it's. Uh, I think it's critical to move for the safety of players moving forward. And really, I, it just makes a ton of sense. If the international softball game uses it, and with the way professional softball is expanding now and whatnot, um, I think it's good to get them acclimated to a double bag system. Not only for safety, but for if they want to keep playing softball after they graduate from college. So that'll be great. Instant replay is going to become a bigger factor this year. Um, pretty much, it's going to be a lot more in-depth and widespread throughout the country. So that'll be very, very helpful, I think, moving forward. Um, very much looking forward to seeing instant replay get bad calls out of the game. Well, at least as much as they can be. But So let's move on to college softball players and transfers. So we have the outstanding pitcher from Campbell, Georgiana, Georgiana Barefoot. She transferred from Campbell to Charlotte. I think that's going to be a good pickup for Charlotte in the for this season. Catcher from James Madison, Emily Phillips, transferred from James Madison over to McNeese State, the Lady Cowgirls. I'll be interested to follow her journey 
um, as she takes on a new role for a new team. Alabama had four players transfer out of their program. Abby Doer transferred to Oregon State. Pitcher Lexi Kilfoyle transferred to Oklahoma State, thus reinforcing Oklahoma State's pitching staff, which is absolutely insane in my in my opinion. Uh, but outfielder Dallas Goodnight transferred from Alabama to Georgia. Interesting little SEC in conference transfer. Um, and then lastly, from Alabama, Megan Bloodworth transferred to Oklahoma State with Kelly Lexi Kilfoyle. Outfielder Maddie Bejarano, you may not know the name, but she had a great tournament, NCAA American Conference Tournament and NCAA Tournament for Central Florida. She's now headed west and will be playing for BYU this year. I'll be interested to see how big of an impact she can have on the outfield for the Cougars. Savannah Sykes transferred from Georgia to Ole Miss, another NSEC conference transfer. Pitcher Alex Draco transfers from Michigan to Oklahoma. That should be big for Oklahoma to get some pit more pitching depth. Not that they necessarily need it coming off of being an absolutely stacked roster. Uh, but utility player Annabelle Weidra transferred from Michigan to Auburn. So get transferring from uh, Big Ten to the SEC should be interesting. Uh, Hannah Carson, catcher infielder from Michigan, transferred to LSU. So another SEC transfer or to transfer to the SEC. Mackenzie Donahue had a great uh, tw- uh, College World Series in 21 for Oklahoma. Didn't really play last year because the team was just incredibly stacked across the board. She transferred to Tennessee, so she should be able to get some playing time in the outfield for Tennessee. Pitcher McKenna Clithermis transferred from Oregon to Ole Miss. I would very intrigued to see if her pitching can translate to uh, SEC play. Two pitchers from Virginia Tech transferred. Mackenzie Osborne didn't get much time last year for, with Virginia Tech. She transferred to Arizona State. Should definitely get more pitching time there. And Ivy Rosenberry got a little bit more time than Osborne. But with Keely Rochard and Emma Lemley, she just wasn't going to get that many innings. And she's now at Oklahoma State. So, again, another Oklahoma State play uh, pitcher coming in to absolutely reinforce their pitching depth. Pitcher Peyton Gottschall, the outstanding pitcher from Bowling Green, who doesn't, who will not get enough love for her, um, for how good she is. She is now at Tennessee, down in uh, Rocky Top. So, um, I think it'll be interesting to keep up with her this season. Brooke Yanez, the pitcher from Oregon, uh, landed at UCLA, which I thought was very interesting, an impact 12 transfer. Um, but that certainly gives UCLA a little more depth in the pitching circle. Carly Petty uh, had a has had an outstanding career at Oklahoma State, transferred to LSU. Miranda Ellis's sister Maddie transferred from Arizona to Purdue. I don't know exactly how big of an impact that will have on her, but all I know is James Madison plays Purdue at North Carolina in the beginning of March, so I will be interested to get a glimpse of how good she is. Pitcher Shay O'Leary, she had some good times at Texas, but she's transferred to Division II UT Tyler, which is the uh, Texas the University of Texas sub-campus, or however you want to refer to it, in Tyler, Texas. Infielder Kylie Halverson, absolutely one of the best mid-major players um, from South Dakota State Jackrabbits. She's now at Arkansas to reinforce that Arkansas Razorback team, looking to build off of their success of the last two seasons. 
Allie Wall Jasper, the great LSU pitcher, her sister, Lindsay, transferred from Charlotte to Boise State. I think that'll be a good get for Boise State because I didn't know any of their pitchers beforehand, but I think having that Wall Jasper name gives her some credibility and credence to put her in the circle for big games. Um, I know Boise State's a really good program, and Lindsay's also a decent and talented hitter, too, so that gives her versatility in Boise State's lineup. Southern Conference Pitcher of the Year Morgan Scott transferred from UNCG to Oregon. Kind of replaced McKenna Clothermis. Uh, so, interested to see what she does for Oregon. Absolute stud Haley Lee transferred from Texas A&M to, unfortunately, Oklahoma to reinforce their lineup. Not that they just retool their lineup and pitching staff. That's all they do. They bring in quality transfers and freshmen. So it's like, what are you going to do at this point? I mean, I'm going to just go ahead and say Oklahoma's the prohibitive favorite to win it all again this year. Uh, but Charlize Palacios had an up-and-down career at Arizona. She's now at UCLA, so that should be interesting to follow this year. Catcher Julia Cottrell transferred from Oklahoma State to Texas A&M. So there's a ton of transfers. I could have gone a whole lot more. The one that is, I, I think, is the biggest impact will be Peyton Gottschall. Just because I don't think enough people knew enough people knew their her name because she wasn't at a Power 5 school. So I'm very intrigued to see now she's in the best conference in America. So now she's going to get put to the test. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing what she can do against some of the best in the country. Uh, over in Arizona State, Trisha Ford left Tempe and Arizona State to become the new head coach at Texas A&M after Joe Evans, legendary coach Joe Evans, was let go. As a result of that, every pitcher for the Sun Devils entered the transfer portal. Allison Royalty transferred to Florida State. Mac Morgan transferred to Texas, and Alina Torres transferred to Oklahoma. Well, Sydney Sanders also entered her name in the transfer portal, and she's going to Oklahoma as well. There's one exception. Marissa Schuld pulled her name out of the transfer portal and would return to Tempe. As for what kind of impact this will have on both schools moving forward, I would think Texas A&M is going to start looking like a more decent program now. What that leaves for Arizona State, I'm not exactly sure. I will be very keen to see how the Arizona State does in the Pac-12 this season. With a whole new regime and new faces and all this good stuff. So I'm very intrigued to see where this goes. But we're going to have to wait and see how it all plays out. Um, but very much looking forward to that. Uh, seeing how both schools are affected. Well, let's get down to the nitty-gritty, shall we? Let's talk preseason conference champions. The American picks Central Florida, which is not really a big shock, but Wichita State should absolutely be in the running for that um, top spot in the American. Um, you just never know, man. I, I think Wichita State has what it takes to take down Jada Cody in Central Florida. Moving on to the Atlantic Sun Conference, Liberty, as expected, is predicted to be the conference champions. I don't really see that going any other way, to be honest with you. I've seen Liberty in person. I've seen them on TV. They schedule ridiculously hard non or out-of-conference, non-conference games. And we'll obviously have some of them listed on the week-to-week -week schedule. Um, but I just don't see anyone in the Atlantic Sun competing with Liberty and taking them down. 
Moving on to the Big 12, obviously, Oklahoma got the top spot. Oklahoma State and Texas could very well push Oklahoma, but I still I still see Oklahoma as the top dog in the Big 12. The Big East is interesting. DePaul was selected as the Big East champions, not Villanova, not UConn. And the, the, if you look at the polls, it was very close between those three. I'm very intrigued to see the Big East race play out. Um, I don't think DePaul's going to win the Big East, but if they do, kudos to them. I just think it's going to be Villanova at UConn. It's been that way. I know change is coming across conferences, but it, it still feels like it's Villanova and UConn's title to lose in the Big East for me. In the Southland Conference, it's McNeese State, project, the Lady Cowgirls, projected to be the champions. Now, Southeast Southeastern Louisiana pushed them last year. I would be remiss if I didn't bring that up, but I fully see McNeese State as the top dog in the Southland Conference, and I'll stick with that. Moving on to the SEC, Florida was projected as the champions. Interesting choice. I would have gone back to Arkansas, to be honest with you. I think Arkansas is the best team in the SEC, which is saying a lot, considering you have Alabama, Florida, I mean, Georgia. I mean, I, but I, I would have picked Arkansas, to be honest with you. That's just me, but... ACC, old good old reliable. Florida State was picked as the champions. Virginia Tech was right behind them. I mean, the ACC top of the ACC is really good. Florida State, Virginia Tech, Duke, Clemson, those four, very much all going to be competing for the ACC title. And I'm very intrigued by that race as well. Conference USA, North Texas, the Mean Green. Um. I don't really have a lot of knowledge on the teams in the Conference USA, but I would assume North Texas is one of the best in Conference USA. Sunbelt, good old reliable Louisiana, despite the new additions that they've added. Um, the Sunbelt could very easily be the top group of five conference for softball, and it has... It could be a, a it's better than the American for to make it a power six argument for that because the American claims power six conference, but I don't have the time nor the energy to get into that discussion. Um, but Louisiana, the Raging Cajuns, projected on top of the Sun Belt. A newcomer's James Madison was picked fifth behind Troy, Texas State, and South Alabama and Louisiana, of course. I'll be interested to see where my alma mater finishes, and I'll very be very intrigued to see the Sunbelt race. In fact, my first road trip this year will be to the Louisiana at James Madison series up in Harrisonburg. Um the first weekend in April. I'm very much looking forward to that trip and seeing that atmosphere in person. But we'll get to that later on in the season. Ohio Valley Conference champion, Tennessee Martin. Now, the Ohio Valley, I've heard great things about going into this year. I don't have enough knowledge or in-depth knowledge of the Ohio Valley to make an educated guess on the champion in that conference. So I'll, I'll stick with that. Um, Big South, USC Upstate had a great season last year. I would expect them to repeat. I mean, they didn't win the Big South, uh, but I expect them to be on top of the Big South this year. Campbell could put up a good fight. Um, but I really see this being USC Upstate's conference title to lose or win. Uh, Missouri Valley, Northern Iowa. Um, I know Missouri Valley had, had Drake has had success in the past, 
I think the torch has passed away from Drake. It's kind of rotating around the other Missouri Valley Conference teams at this moment. Not really locked in on one in particular, but I think the Panthers are just the one that happened to be the in the best shape for this season. Southern Conference, Samford over UNCG, which I thought was a very interesting choice. I mean, I know Samford took down UNCG to go to the tournament last year, um, but I still think UNCG is top dog in the SoCon, despite Samford being named the Bulldogs. Horizon League, Oakland, perennially seems to be one of the best in the Horizon League, um, and there's nothing, no evidence to suggest that that should change at this time. Northeast Conference. St. Francis U, the Red Flash. Um, I, if I'm not mistaken, they still have Grace Vesco on their team, and th that reason alone is enough for me to say that St. Francis will win that conference. I have no confidence in any of the other teams in that conference to take down the Red Flash. West Coast Conference actually had a tie at the top between BYU and Loyola Marymount, and I think that's pr pretty accurate. Um... Loyola Marymount's been proving themselves as of late in recent years. Um, BYU should be ready for a, a knockdown, drag them out fight throughout the West Coast Conference season. CAA has UNCW on top. They went to the they won the conference tournament last year in the CAA. Went to the Clemson for the regionals. Um. I don't see any reason to pick against the Seahawks um, in their quest to go back to the tournament. Summit League, I know South Dakota State lost Kylie Halverson, but I still think the Jackrabbits are the best team in the Summit League, and they were picked as the preseason champion. Patriot League, Boston University, they're the perennial favorites in the Patriot League even though Lehigh took them down last year to go to the tournament, I think the Lady Terriers will get right this season and get back to the NCAA tournament. Big Sky had a tie as well for their preseason champion between Weber State and Sacramento State, which I thought was interesting. Weber State's been the perennial power in the Big Sky. I didn't really see the Lady Hornets at, over at Sacramento State posing much of a threat to Weber State. Um, but when I saw that poll come out, that, that raised a little red flag, some red flags for me. Um, so I'm going to be very interested to see how the Big Sky race pans out. America East Power, UMBC, obviously the best team in there. The Retrievers should win the America East Conference again. Um, Big West, Cal State Fullerton. It's always between Cal State Fullerton and Long Beach State. They got Cal State Fullerton as the preseason champion this year. I see no reason to doubt that the Titans will take the top spot again this year. Now, we're waiting on the Metro Atlantic Athletic Conference's preseason champion. If that comes in the near future, I will throw that on to future episodes. Um... And there's a couple other conferences that I'll get to here as we keep moving forward. The WAC has picked Grand Canyon as their preseason champion. I think that's a good pick. Grand Canyon has shown the ability in recent years to be somewhat of a formidable force within... Because uh, I, I remember, I believe they took down... I don't know if it was, Florida State was number one at the time, but they took down Florida State, who was top, at least top five at the time. So I think the Antelopes there at Grand Canyon should be able to win the Western Athletic Conference. Uh, the MAC or Maction has not released their preseason champion, so we will save that for another time should they release that. If not, so be it. Uh, but the MEAC, Mid-Eastern Athletic Conference, picked Howard as their champions. Not really particularly surprised. To be honest, their out-of-conference in the MEAC is kind of horrendous every year. 
But once you get into conference play, Howard seems to be towards the top of the cream there. Um, so I'd fully expect Howard to be on top. Mountain West Conference, Boise State over San Diego State is a big decision by the conference. Um, <sighs> I really don't know. For me, it's a toss-up between Boise State and San, San Diego State. I just I don't know which one is better as at this moment. Uh, but I think it's a virtual toss-up, to be quite honest with you. Um, I really don't know whether to trust the Broncos or the Aztecs more, but that's why we're going to see how the season plays out. I'm very intrigued to see that race. Pac-12, no surprise that UCLA is picked as the champion. I don't really see anything that would say UCLA is not going to win it. What I do think is exciting is that the Pac-12 will have a conference tournament this year, which will be hosted by Arizona there at Hillenbrand Stadium uh, out there in Tucson, which I will be very intrigued to see the Pac-12 tournament in its first edition. SWAC, I don't have a knowledge of the SWAC conference as it relates to softball. I do know Alabama State. They are projected as the East champion, East Division champion, Purview A&M as the West Division champion. Other than that, I really don't have a ton of analysis for the SWAC. The Atlantic 10 has picked Fordham as their champion. The, uh, they went to the NCAA tournament last year, so it stands to reason that the Rams would be able to win the Atlantic 10 and get back to the NCAA tournament. I don't really see a ton of competition that would be able to dethrone the Rams. Um, and lastly, the Big Ten and the Ivy League don't have preseason conference champions. I believe the Ivy League one will come out later, closer to when they start actually playing in a couple more weeks after it gets quote-unquote warmer. Big Ten, I don't think, ever really releases preseason champions, but I'll keep an eye out for it just in case. Um, so if those four conference champions that have preseason conference champions haven't been um, dealt with, then uh, we'll just move forward with it. But let's move on to the week one schedule. What I've been waiting for. Let's start down in Mexico at the Puerto Vallarta College Challenge. Well, it's since it's technically Thursday, I'll say tonight or today. North Carolina will take on BYU. Very intrigued to see that. I know North Carolina just picked up uh, a former Oklahoma hitter um, to be their hitting coach, so I'm very intrigued to see what North Carolina's lineup looks like. Um, and BYU, they're always teetering on the brink of being a really great program, but just can't seem to get over that hump, which is why I'm also intrigued to see BYU play Wisconsin later on Thursday as well. Friday down in Mexico, Wisconsin, Oregon, great test early for both teams. Also, Oklahoma State, Oregon. Might uh, that honestly might be the that is the second best game of this first week session or week uh, at in Puerto Vallarta down in Mexico, and I'll get to the other one here in a minute. Uh, but Ole Miss, North Carolina as well. I'm intrigued to see. Saturday, Oregon Ole Miss, probably the third best game, I would say, third most exciting game matchup. Wisconsin Ole Miss is another good one. Oklahoma State, North Carolina, I think Oklahoma State's going to wax North Carolina, but I'm interested to see if North Carolina can pull out some magic and be able to play with uh, the Cowgirls. And then Sunday... What I think is the best matchup, most exciting matchup down in Mexico, Ole Miss, Oklahoma State. If that was on TV, I would say that's must-watch TV, but it's probably on Flow Softball, which is, I'm not going to get started on Flow Sports. Um, 
but I, that would be must-watch television. If you have the streaming capabilities to be able to watch the game, absolutely recommend you watch Ole Miss, Oklahoma State. Now, for the rest of the country, today, on Thursday, <coughs> excuse me, we have Georgia at Central Florida. Very interesting matchup on opening day. I'm very intrigued to see if Central Florida can open the season with a win against an SEC team on their home field. Another in-state team that I'm interested for down there in Florida, South Florida. Now that Georgina Cork has graduated and moved into professional softball, also Coach Hutchins, the legendary coach, the most one of the most winningest coaches in college softball, stepped down at Michigan. So I'm very interested to see how Michigan at South Florida goes tonight. Washington Duke should be a good early. Uh, test between two top 25 teams. And then Duke will play Oklahoma later in the day. I don't think Duke is going to beat Oklahoma, but I would like to see Duke at least not get run-ruled by Oklahoma. Notre Dame-Arizona State. I mentioned Arizona State earlier. I'm interested to see what their season looks like uh, moving forward. Um, so I'm interested to see what they look come out with against Notre Dame um, out there at uh, San Diego State. Oklahoma Liberty, again, I think Liberty is going to get run-ruled, but I want to see if they can at least hold their own against Oklahoma enough. A very interesting in-state battle, Cal State Fullerton will be at UCLA. I don't give Cal State Fullerton much of a chance to win, but I'm intrigued to see can they keep it close? Can they rattle UCLA on opening day, opening night? Um, so we'll have to see how that goes. South Carolina at Charlotte. Now, this is more because I'm more interested about Charlotte than I am about South Carolina. Charlotte proved last year they were a very good team, and their RPI was very good. So I'm very, very intrigued to see how Charlotte comes out on opening day when they host an SEC team. Arizona State at San Diego State. That is a very good matchup. I think I think San Diego State might pull out a win in that game because I just don't know what to expect from Arizona State coming out of the gate. And then Loyola Marymount will be at Stanford or will play against Stanford. It will be in California, in Irvine, California, I believe. So this will be a very interesting matchup. Stanford is looking like a top 20, top 15 type team this year, so I'm interested to see what Loyola Marymount brings to the table. Moving on to Friday. Boston University, we just mentioned them as the preseason Patriot League champs. They will be at South Florida. Be interested to see how that looks. Wichita State will be at Texas State. Top American team versus one of the top Sunbelt teams. Very intrigued to see that matchup. Boise State at Central Florida. Again, Boise State could be right on the cusp of being a top 25 team. So let's see what they look like going to Florida and taking on a Central Florida team that is already ranked in the preseason rankings. Duke and Liberty should offer some in interesting entertainment out there in uh, California. Notre Dame at San Diego State. Very intrigued to see what the Aztecs can do at home against Notre Dame. Liberty, Washington. Again, another... I mentioned Liberty's non-conference schedule is stacked, and the, 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 this is why. They're going to California to play Oklahoma, Duke, Washington. Their schedule is crazy. Um, Texas, Missouri. Barry, that's the, down in Florida at the NFCA leadoff classic. That's a very intriguing game as well. Um, Northwestern, Texas, that's pretty much a top 15 battle, if I'm not mistaken. 
Stanford, Oklahoma. Can Stanford show that what they did in the NCAA tournament last season can carry over into this season against the reigning champs? Then we got, let's see, Weber State, Arkansas. I'm always intrigued to see Weber State when they take on a big team like Arkansas. Now, this one might not get a lot of hype, a lot of attention to it, but Western Kentucky was really good last year. I'm very intrigued to see them take on Minnesota and what they can do against the the Gophers. South Dakota State and Nebraska, I'm very intrigued to see what South Dakota State looks like. Nebraska is going to be really good in the Big Ten. I think Nebraska could be one of the favorites in the Big Ten this year. South Alabama Northwestern, another Sunbelt team taking on a very good Big Ten team. If I had to pick a Big Ten champion, I'd say Northwestern, but I think Nebraska's right up there with them. Illinois, Tennessee. I don't expect Illinois to be great or anything, but I'm intrigued to see what they come out opening weekend against Tennessee. Another matchup you might not be thinking is a very big one, North Texas-St. Francis. That's two preseason conference champions going against each other. Miami of Ohio, I think Courtney Veerstra is still there at Miami of Ohio, so her going against Charlotte is a very intriguing matchup for me. Georgia-Boise State's another very good matchup down at Central Florida. Arkansas at UNLV. That's UNLV was another really good team out of the Mountain West last year. I want to see if they can take down Arkansas at home. Cal at Loyola Marymount. Cal, I never expect big things out of. They usually finish towards the bottom of the Pac-12. So I would fully expect Loyola Marymount to win this game, but we'll see. Boston University will take on Florida. They have a better chance of beating South Florida than Florida, but we'll see. Ohio State, Georgia. Ohio State's garnering some top 25 buzz from what I understand, so I'll be interested to see what they look like against Georgia. Very off the radar. Missouri State, they were good in the Missouri Valley last year at Southeastern Louisiana. Missouri Valley versus Southland, that's not a matchup that would scream headlines to most people. But because I know what both teams looked like last year and what they did, I'm interested to see what they will look like against each other on opening weekend. Moving on to Saturday, Ohio State at Central Florida. I mean, what haven't I said about Central Florida already to go along with Ohio State? Ohio State, Boise State. The Battle of the States, if you will. Duke-Stanford, very intriguing matchup. Uh, But uh, that's probably a top 20 matchup. I don't know if it's top 15, but it's close. Central Arkansas, McNeese State. These are two teams that give Power 5 programs troubles at times. So I'm very intrigued to see what they look like against each other. One of the biggest games of the weekend, Tennessee-Texas. Very intrigued to see the Oranges go against each other. Texas will play Illinois as well on Saturday. Washington-Oklahoma, another big one this weekend. Very intrigued to see what they look like going against each other. I think Oklahoma will win, but (coughs) I'll reserve judgment for that. Another Arkansas-Weber State matchup. Weber State at UNLV is a very good matchup between um, Big Sky and Mountain West. Iowa-Mississippi State. Iowa's not going to draw a ton of attention, and uh, Mississippi State got to, I believe, their first Super Regional last year. So, very intrigued to see what those two will look like against each other. Western Kentucky's got two games against Michigan on Saturday. Missouri-Northwestern, very good matchup. Cal at Cal State Fullerton. That's mainly for Cal State Fullerton because I'm intrigued to see what they'll look like 
Loyola Marymount at UCLA, I would love nothing more than to see Loyola Marymount give UCLA a tough game. I just don't know if it'll happen. Tennessee, South Alabama, can one of the projected top teams in the Sun Belt take down an SEC power like Tennessee? We'll have to wait until Saturday to find out. Again, Missouri State at Southeastern Louisiana. It's a series, so it'll be Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then lastly, Oregon State at LSU. What does Oregon State look like now going into the bayou to take on the LSU Tigers? We'll have to find out. Sunday, Florida at South Florida. Should be a very hyped-up matchup there in uh, Tampa. I don't think South Florida has the firepower to beat Florida now that Georgina Cork is gone. I don't see South Florida keeping Florida off the board or off the scoreboard. Another Wichita State-Texas State matchup, Liberty and Stanford. Kentucky-Texas, another one of the potential matchups of the weekend. Weber State-UVNLV again. Minnesota-Western Kentucky again. Northwestern Tennessee is... Uh, potential game of the week candidate. Auburn-Illinois is a low-key, really good matchup that I'm very intrigued to see. Again, Cal, Cal State-Fullerton. That's for Cal State-Fullerton. South Carolina at Charlotte again on Sunday. Missouri State at Southeast Louisiana. Georgia-Boise State. Oregon State at LSU again. And then Washington at Loyola Marymount. Now, Loyola Marymount gets them at home, which I think gives them a distinct advantage when taking on the Huskies of Washington. I don't think they'll win, but I think they'll at least play up to the crowd that will be behind them. And then lastly, Tuesday, Liberty will be at UCLA. Very good non-conference matchup. I don't think Liberty is going to go to Los Angeles and take down the Bruins, but I, I'm intrigued to see what they are able to do, if they can do anything at all. So that's the so that's everything I got for the first week of the college softball season, um, and all the professional and international softball. That's what I got. Um, I this week is going to be dom this weekend is going to be dominated by the Super Bowl, no doubt. Um, so. It's going to be tough to find games. It's not. There's not going to be games on TV this weekend. So you're unless you have the Longhorn Network and then Texas's game. Oh no, Texas isn't even at home, so their games aren't going to be on Longhorn Network either. Um, once we get through this opening weekend of college softball and get through the Super Bowl, then we get to next week, and that opens up a lot of television games, a lot more games on ESPN Plus or the. ESPN app, um, but just take in as much softball as you can. It's opening weekend. You should be enjoying the softball. It's a beautiful time. It's not quite as great as March Madness, in my opinion, but it's just as fun. Um, looking forward to doing this again probably going to be recording Wednesday nights. If I get the opportunity, I'll record Wednesday afternoons, but we'll have to see how that all plays out. So the podcast will drop Thursday after I get home from work tomorrow or today now, rather. Um, if I do record it Wednesday afternoons after I get off work, then I would put it up Wednesday. But since I'm recording this one very late at night, now it's 12.39 Thursday morning, I will be putting it up when I get home from work tomorrow for all of you to listen. Um, so, like I said, enjoy the softball. It's going to be a great opening weekend. Plenty of great matchups out there to be excited for and to check out if you can. Um... I know I'm going to have my eyes on several games. Um, don't know exactly which games yet, but we'll figure that out. Um, just enjoy the softball. Have a great week, everybody. 
We'll be back again next week for week two, looking ahead to the uh, Tax Act Clearwater Invitational and some other tournaments and uh, just recapping week one and getting you ready for week two. This is your main man, Tyler, signing off with the Around the Bases podcast for week one. Welcome to season four, everybody. Thank you. Have a great week. Good night.